You are listening to a teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled Renew. This series invites people to experience God's renewal of their heart, mind, strength, and actions. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Well, today we are going to uh, uh, end our series in Renew. And the big idea around this series, Renew, is that we're contending for renewal. We're contending for heart renewal, mind renewal, strength renewal. Um, uh, and today we're going to get into, into actions. And what's, it's been cool to kind of hear some stories uh, from all of our locations, whether it's Kirkwood here in the city, the Lake Washington, about just how God is touching people's lives, how he's, he's touching dry areas, how he's touching those painful areas, and he's bringing much, much needed uh, renewal. And we've contended for that. And today we're going we're gonna to talk about uh, renewed action. So if you would turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4, if you brought your Bible, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have one, I just want to encourage you to uh, bring, along, bring one along with you. If you don't uh, have one, uh, you can take one of ours, or you could go to Lost and Found and find a better one. I mean, there's some pretty, some leather-bound ones. As long as you're willing to change your name, you could find some pretty good um, Bibles there for you. Uh, but if you don't, you can. There's a black one in front of you, and that would be on page 978. We're going to read Ephesians 4, 17 to 24 um, uh, here in just... Uh, a second. It says this, Paul writes, he says, Now this I say and testified in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened and in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them. Now this doesn't mean unintelligent. All right? So don't go there. Don't say, well, that's your, don't, they're not saying they're unintelligent. They're just saying that there is a, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that there is a, and he's, he's going to say it here in a second, there's a spirit that governs your mind, that you don't just have a mind, you have a mindset. You just don't have a view, you have a viewpoint. Your, your brain didn't just detect things. It has a demeanor, it has a bent, it has an attitude. And it's, 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 a, it's a mindset. Before you came into your relationship with Christ, it was ignorant of those things. And it says, this was due to your hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, to greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, okay? So, well, well, I'll come back to that, actually. Assuming that you have uh, heard about him and were taught in him as the truth in Jesus to put off your old self... Okay, which belongs to your former manner of life that is corrupt through the deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, okay, so before these verses, uh, particularly in Ephesians 4, uh, 14 through 16, Paul's saying, hey, look, I-, I want you to be like Christ. I want you to grow in maturity. If you're familiar with that text, uh, you know, it's like, hey, you know, we're looking for oaks of righteousness that you'd grow in every way and strength that you wouldn't waver in life. You wouldn't be like, you know, what's going on with me? But you'd be strong and you'd be like Christ. And then he begins to spell out in this passage, okay, this is what it looks like. And he continues, actually, if you read the rest of Ephesians 4, 25 to 32, he continues to talk, expand upon that. So he's saying, hey, I want you to be like, and this is how you be like. And uh, now, it's really important uh, that we understand that. So in, in this series, we've been talking about like, 
uh, that salvation, that conversion, that becoming a Christian is not about what we do, but what Christ does. So he's saying, hey, the reason why you used to live in this former life, darkened understanding, uh, you know, calloused hard heart, is because you, you weren't a Christian yet. You, were, uh, you walked according to the way it says Gentiles. That just means uh, not a Jew, not a part of the people of God, not, not in sync with how, uh, how uh, God would have things to be. So as you walked as like a non-believer, you could say, use that language too if you want. Um, you, you know, you, you, there was a reason for that. It was because of the hardness of your heart. So we talked about, hey, you need a renewed heart. God needs to come in, change your desires. Uh, and then we talked about renewed mind and, and renewed strength. Uh, and this is all bringing us up to these renewed actions. But one of the key things that he says here, uh, he didn't just say, hey, we are darkened under understanding and, and then we had a hard heart. It says because of this, that it says that we have given themselves. So we, uh, before Christ, and, or maybe you're there today, that we give ourselves to stuff, right? Like we, we, we give our things that we just got to do. Like we just, we just, we, got, we give ourselves to work. We, we give ourselves to relationship. You know, I just got to have financial security. I just got to have somebody on my arm. I just, I just got to be the best. And so he's talking about giving yourself over to something. And we all do that. And then it says that it says that lying greedy to practice every kind of uh, impurity, which means that we have this over desire, that we have this lust to continually give ourselves to these things. And we just it's in fact, that phrase really means to to desire it more and more and more and more. What are you talking about? Well, well, this is what we do in our in our because we have a deep need that we want to fill. We we say, hey, you know what? I I've got to have this relationship, or I I've got to have financial security. So if I could just reach this level of income, that's going to do it for me. You get to that level of income, what happens? It doesn't do it for you. So you keep raising the bar. You keep raising the bar, and so it's like, well, money doesn't satisfy. So guess what? Guess what I'll do? I'll just I just want more of it, and more of it, and more of it. More. I don't know if you watched. Um, the Madoff two-part series on Bernie Madoff. You don't know who Bernie Madoff is? He was a financial genius who ended up ripping, who did the biggest scam, financial scam in history, uh, stole like, uh, embezzled or stole $150 billion from investors. Um, and they asked him, why did you do that? Because you, had, you were rich already. He's like, yeah, I, I had, there was not, there, I, I, there was nothing that my lifestyle demanded that I, didn't, I couldn't write a check for. You're like, well, why did you do it? Well, I just wanted more. Well, that's what he's talking about. And before you sneer there is you got to understand that that's in your heart too. That, that you want that. That, well, and so you ever talk, you know, you see, it's easy to see it in someone else, hard to see in yourself. You wanted that relationship. And it just causes you such anguish and pain and suffering. So guess what? You want it even more. You have this continual desire for it and, it, and it traps you. Now, what Paul just did there in those three verses, he just explained to you why you are the way you are. He just explained to you why you get caught up in these patterns of behavior that end up uh, hurting you or hurting others. Uh, he just explained that to you. He just, he just laid that out to us very, very helpfully. But just to say, with some reflection and uh, maybe some psychology and some uh, reasoning, and you can figure that out. He, he, just, he just laid out verses, uh, he, he said, hey, this is what's wrong with you, um, which is helpful. It's helpful to know what's wrong with it. Now, what, what he wasn't able to do, or excuse me, what he hasn't done yet is he hasn't told us, okay, so now what? 
You've told me what's wrong with me, now what? Well, psychology can do that, but what psychology can't do, what science can't do, what reasoning can't do, is it can't tell you how you ought to be. Let me, let me say this. I've taken every personality test under the sun. Myers-Briggs, Belbin, did, I mean, whatever it is, I've done it. You, you, uh, strength Finder, all that stuff. I've done it all, and, I, you know, I, and it tells me exactly why. And so I come home, I, I say, hey, this, hey, this, hey guess what, Rach? It t- this tells me why I am the way I am. She's like, I, knew, I could, could have told you that. And, um, <laughs> and, and she's like, well, here, here's a be Take a test that tells you how, you, how to, you ought to be, and more importantly, how you can change. Well, psychology can't do that. Science can't tell. It can tell you why you are the way you are, but it can't tell you how you ought to be. And here's why. It's a very good, good reason. Because how you ought to be is not a, is not a matter of, of objective science, psychology. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of belief. It's, I'll say it this way. It's, a, it's the religious realm. As soon as you move from, as soon as you start to say things like, well, I think, I think you ought to be like this, or I think that I ought to be like this. You've gone into the belief realm. that You, you have tenets to that belief, and, and you have a statement for how things ought to be. And you have a belief on how other people ought to be. Now you're saying, well, hold on a second, Brian. I don't, I don't do that. I, I, I don't tell anyone how they ought to be. I just, I just encourage people that, that they, should, they should do whatever they, is best for them, that they should find their own moral compass, their own uh, agenda, and, and that's what I tell people. But as soon as you ascribe to something that's called moral relativism, as soon as you, as soon as you say, even in that, that I just think people should do whatever is best for them, that in itself, you're telling people how they ought to be. You're saying, you're, you're, and that's a matter of belief, that's a matter of religion, it's not a matter of science, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a matter of psychology, it's a, mat, it's a matter of religion. It's a, you're making faith assumptions about... So science, psychology can't tell me whether or not I should get a divorce. It can't tell you and I how to use our sexuality. It can't tell you how to raise kids. As soon as it does, it's no longer science. It's moved into the religious realm. Now, what's my point of all this? Here's my point. Maybe some of you here today are moral relativists. And, or maybe you're just sympathetic to that. And like, man, I, and what's kept you from Christianity or what's kept you from really like running hard for Christianity is like, man, I don't want to tell anyone what to do. I don't want to tell someone how they ought to live. Let me tell you something. Everybody has a grid on how they ought to live and everyone has a grid for how other people ought to live. Everybody does. Everybody, every, even the person who's like, well, you can't tell people how they ought to live. You're just telling me how I ought to live. You just did that. Here's the difference. The difference between moral relativists and Christians are Christians admit it. They admit it. Say, yes, yeah, I, I know how you ought to, I know how I ought to live, and I know how you ought to live. It looks like Jesus. Jesus is the supreme human. human. That's, wh- that's, what, that's what I think. I think I ought to be like that. I think you ought to. Well, what's so great about Je- Jesus is amazing. He's the biggest. He, he is the perfect human. He, he is who we all would want to be. He has this amazing paradox. John 2, it says that he did not trust himself. He didn't trust anyone. He didn't trust himself to anyone. And yet he continually and without reservation gave himself to people and made himself vulnerable. He was extremely humble yet unbelievably bold. 
He was as tender as a dove, but he knew when it was, he was supposed to get angry. He himself was without sin, but he never looked down his nose at anyone. He was more moral and pure than the most traditional conservative conservatist. Conservative, conservative, excuse me. But yet, he had a, his compassion for the poor and the minority and the marginalized far exceeded the most liberal liberal. He was absolutely amazing. He had the power to call down angels from heaven and feed multitudes, yet he never did anything for his own advantage. He could debate anyone, but he spoke, when he spoke to the simple, he spoke at their level. And when it came time to pay the bill on my sin and your sin, the only one with the resume to write the kind of check to pay that bill He stepped forward and he became an object of my suffering. And he became an object of your suffering. See, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't sin. So why were his wages death? Because he took the record of debt that you had and that you had and that you had and you had and I had. And anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord, he took that record of debt and he took it upon himself. And the Bible says that he who knew no sin became our sin. Every thought, every deed, every action. He took that responsibility. He took it upon himself and he became sin. So that you and I could get something. You and I could have righteousness. You and I could have a clean conscience. You and I could have a rock solid industrial strength identity. What a human being. I want to be like Jesus. I want to talk like Jesus. I want to walk like Jesus. I want to think like him. I want to feel like him. I want to relate to others like him. Be bold like him. Fierce like him. Secure like him. Content like him. I no longer want to figure life on my own. I don't want to be true to myself. I want to be true to him. That's who I think I ought to be like. And that's who, you know what? That's who I think you ought to be like. Why? Because I figured something out. No, I've just, man, he's just revealed himself I was darkened in my understanding. I was callous in my heart. And he came and he made, he made something alive in me. He caused my eyes to see something. He did everything. It's all him. It's nothing, it's nothing of me. It's all him. And here's the thing. Everybody, here's what you have to know. If you're, you want to be intellectually consistent, everybody is making a statement of how you ought to live. And you're making a statement of how you ought to live. And you're making a statement of how other people ought to live. Here's what I found. I think the, mo- the clearest and the most coherent ought to is in the person of Jesus. And if you're wrestling with that, if you're wrestling with this, well, how can you, how can how everybody is and everybody does, including you. And I want to be like him. And I think other people ought to be like him. The question is, is how do you get there? Well, Paul begins to tell us. He tells us uh, in verse 22 that you have, to do, you have to put off your old self and you have to put on your new self. You have to put things off and you have to put things on. Now, there, it's important that you do both, that you put off things and you put on things. There are some churches or ideologies that focus all, you know, all on the... Um, 
on what you put off. So you've got to put things off. You've got to stop doing bad things. you just got to stop it, stop sinning. Uh, you stop the bad living, just put it off. You know, there's no power to do it. There's nothing that we really know what to do in place of that. Just stop sinning. Just say no. You know, Nancy Ray, just say no. Just like, just stop doing it. Um, my wife is encouraging me right now to get some mulch because she wants to pull weeds in the garden. And one of the things, I'm like, why do you, if you pull, just pull weeds then, why do you need mulch? I mean, I don't get it. And she says, uh, well, if I pull the weeds and I don't put anything in its place, the weeds will just grow back tenfold. So you can't just take something away and not put something there. there there's a reason behind, there's actually a, a, a good reason behind all behavior. I didn't say all behavior is good, but there's a good reason. There's something deep, deep, deep inside you that God put there to cause you to chase after him. Now, what we do is we chase after what the Bible calls empty cisterns. Like we try to drink out of broken cisterns, and they don't satisfy. But we keep going, we keep going, we keep trying, we keep striving. So you can't just take away an action without putting a, a good action in its place. Because it's not how you're wired to be. So you, you, gotta, you, gotta, you can't just focus on taking things away. Just stop sinning. Stop doing bad stuff. No, you've got, you've got to put some things on. Now, there are some churches who just focus on the putting on. It's like, hey, let's just do good deeds. Let's just be nice to people. Let's just forget about sin. Let's forget about that. You know, I'm just giving that to God. I'm just like, let's just be, you know, let's just not worry about that. But the Bible is very clear that there's things that you have to do in this game. Like, he's got... He's got his part. He does all the heavy lifting. He changes your heart. He changes your mind. He renews your strength. And he says, okay, now, I got something for you. You do this. You do this part. And we talked about that the first week uh, in, about Philippians, that, you know, that, that we're meant to work out our salvation because God has worked things in. It's a, it's a, syner, it's a synergistic relationship between us and God. It's, and we use the, like, uh, pedals on, two pedals on a bicycle, that God works in things in our heart and in our mind, and we're meant to work them out. There are things that only God can do. Only God can change a heart. Only God can renew a mind. Only God can change a life. Only God can save someone. So let's let God do his part, but let us do our part, which is it doesn't say, and God will put off, and God will put on. No, that you have to do that. You do that, that you take things off and you put things on. And, and he gives an example. This is an exhaustive list, but if you, list, if you go down in verse 25 and on, he says things like, you know, like falsehood, you know, lying, being dishonest, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, put, you know, malice, put those things away and put on things like, you know, being kind to one another, tenderhearted, meaning open your heart up to people, to everyone, loving them, being forgiving, kindness. So you put things off. So in verse 22, he says, you've got you to you put some old patterns and behaviors off. You've got you to get rid of them. In the middle of that, it says, keep praying that God renew your mind, and then you've got to put on some other activities. Let me give you a case, stu- case study of what I'm talking about. I could do something simple like lying or, or stealing or something like that. It seems obvious, but I'm going to talk about maybe an, a- an attitude that's maybe a little bit nuanced. Let's talk about self-pity. Some of you are like, let's not. Um, <laughs> self-pity, what is, what is self-pity? I've experienced this. Self-pity, you may, you may be experiencing self-pity because you're lonely. Maybe you're, maybe you're uh, it's, you know, you wish you had more friends, better friends. 
maybe you're lonely in your marriage. Maybe you're lonely because you wish you were married. Maybe you just have loneliness, and that's caused self-pity. Maybe it's your financial situation. Maybe it's your health situation. It could be a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons why we experience self-pity. There's a lot of reasons why I've experienced self-pity. But you know what self-pity is? Self, self-pity is saying to God, what have I done to deserve this? What have I designed to be lonely? What have I designed to be in this situation? And the biblical answer to that is, are you kidding me? <laughs> God created you. He made you. He gives you every breath that you take comes from him. He holds the, you know, the world in his pinky. He sustains the world. Oh, by the way, he died for your sins. What do you mean deserve? What are you, t- what are you talking about? Well, um, let, me, let me tell you this story. A fictional story. Um, suppose there was a 12-year-old boy in some third world country who's getting ready to be sold into slavery. I mean, just, and, it, and his fate was clear. I mean, he was going to be used, he was going to be abused, he was going to be, um, I mean, he's going to have an early uh, death. Uh, just terrible things. Beaten. Um, just awful stuff. Horror, horror. And the only way that he could be saved is if someone came in and adopted him. And you thought, you know what? I'm going to do that. And so you, you take off work. You go to this country. You, you, you talk to the governments. You spend lots of money. You liquidate your assets. You liquidate your equity in your home. You, liquid, you, end, up, it's, you end up taking all of your net worth and you end up at the risk of your job and at the risk of your life, you go and you adopt this child and you bring this boy to your home. You snatch him out of the jaws of death and you put him into a place of hope and joy. And two weeks later, he comes to you and says, how come there's not a flat screen in my room? I'm out of here. I can't believe there's not a flat screen in my room. I'm out of here. What, what do you say to that boy? What do you say to that boy? I think, I think with tears in your eye, you're, you're, I mean, you're at least pouring his Cheerios over his head. But with tears in your eye, you're saying, do you have any idea the situation that you were in? Do you have any idea? Do you have any idea what it took to get you out of that situation? Do you have any idea how long you would last on your own in the streets? Do you have any idea? What that kid may deserve in that moment is fine. You want to go? Go. You know, some people think the wrath of God is uh, much more spectacular, much more special effects, much, you know, lightning bolts, Old Testament violence. But Romans 1 says that the wrath of God is this, that he lets you do what you want to do. The truth is, we are all that little boy. Now, what I just did for you right there is how I address the self-pity in my life. Which is, 
because of darkened understanding, the futility of my heart gets cold toward him, I just begin to, th- to think of things from the wrong perspective. And I begin to understand, wait a minute, I, God, God's not been unkind to me. God's not, he's not withheld anything from me. He's given me everything. I'm like this, this boy that was in the jaws of death. I'm like this boy that was in the jaws of horror and he snatched me out of that. Why am I complaining about this? If I don't have it, it's probably because he doesn't think I need it. And if he doesn't think I need it, then I don't need it. And I, and I put off self-pity. And then I say, God, there's something off in my brain. I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know why I think this way. I can't, I'm embarrassed how I think, God, you need to renew my mind. And, I, and I, so I want to put off self-pity. I want to pray that God renew my mind. And I want to put on gratitude. See, self-pity has to do with futility. It's the way I used to, it's the way I used to think. It used to be the way I used to walk when my, my, when my heart was, it knew nothing of God. When it was calloused and hard and obstinate, when my mind was darkened to the things of God, I used to be filled with self-pity. That's the way I used to walk, but that's my old self. It has nothing to do with my new self. So I need to put off that part of me. I need to pray God change my mind, and I need to put on this new self that he has for me. And it's so important that we're resolute in our mind. You see, Proverbs says, says this. He says, um, uh, Solomon says in Proverbs 23, 7, he says, as a man thinks, so he is. Paul writes to the Colossians, to set, you've got to set our minds on things. We, gotta, we have to have, there's this battle going on in our mind. 1 Peter 1, 13, which we'll be studying, by the way, this summer. Um, uh, he, he says this. Um, he says that you, we have to gird ourselves up with truth. You, you know what it means to gird? Anybody know what it means to gird? Any girders in the room? No girders? Girders, it's, it's going to make sense in a minute. Um, a gird, I mean, just like a belt. And everybody back in this time period wore longer, like, robes, essentially, for clothes that went down to your ankles, women and men. And so if you're going to run really fast or do anything strenuous, is that you would, you would pull up your, your uh, robe or whatever, um, and that you would tuck it in your girder, in your gird, and you'd essentially have like a mini skirt, so you could so you could run, so it wouldn't hamper how you run. So you you'd be you'd be ready for battle. You'd be ready to do something strenuous. And so when 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 Peter says things like we've got to gird ourselves up with strength, like we've got to be ready. We've got to we got to be reactive with truth, but we have to be proactive with truth. We have to we have to be ready for this, and that's why. And Paul says in to to the Corinthians, that we have to take every thought captive. You know, we have to take every thought captive because your mind, your imagination is a powerful thing. Imagination isn't just something you did as a kid when you thought about Peter Pan and Santa Claus. Your imagination is how you view reality. It's very vivid. And what you imagine is what's true to you and it's how you respond regardless of facts, regardless of what is true. It's your imagination. There's truth in how you imagine truth to be. And it's true for all of us. And it, and it dictates how you act. It dictates what you do. I mean, if, if, God's, if, God, if, if a doctor came to you and said, Hey, look, if you don't stop eating steak, 
you're going to have a heart attack and die. You can imagine, you can spend time imagining how good that steak is going to taste. Filet, made rare, a little bit of salt. Begin to imagine that. Or you can imagine yourself eating that, croaking and dying. And whatever's more vivid to you is what you do. What's, what's vivid in your life? Truth? What God says is true? Or something else? Because it's not, it's what you imagine truth to be is how you live your life. It's, guard, it's guiding your actions. It's guarding your behaviors. It's guarding your attitudes. Is how you ima- is what you can imagine. See, Jesus says something like this, which I think is so helpful in Luke 10. In Luke 10, he sends out all his disciples. He says, go, I want you to go do ministry. They go to ministry, and they're like, they're like so excited. They're like, man, we, Jesus, you'll never believe it. We were like, we were like smoking down demons. We were, we, were, we were commanding the demons to go, and they were going. We were just zapping them right and left, right and left. And Jesus is, you know, smiling, I'm sure, and just like, oh, that's sweet. It says, look, hey, don't be, don't rejoice that you can, that the demons are subject to your voice. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Now, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? It has everything to do with what we're talking about, and I'll tell you why. Because here's how you and I live. You and I live this way. Man, God, I just want you to zap my loneliness. I wish you could just zap my loneliness, God. God, why don't you just zap my, um, you know, my, just, you know, my financial situation. God, why don't you just zap my health problems? And we, we just want God to come in and zap something. He's like, whoa, 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 what do you, what do you mean zap? What do you mean zap? Your, your, your names are written in the book of life. Are you tracking with that? It means that you've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and you've been put in the kingdom of light. It means that you were headed for eternal torment and now you're headed for eternal joy. But not just that. It's that now the Father in heaven sees you as he sees his son. You are in the beloved. You are in Christ. You are in a relationship with Christ. So how God views Jesus is how God views you. Do you think God is happy with Jesus? Do you think he delights in Jesus? Do you think he looks at Jesus and says, what, a be- what, what beauty, what, what um, amazement? Well, that's exactly how he views you. What do you mean zap loneliness? You have the cosmic fellowship of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What do you, what do you mean that you have low self-esteem? Who care, why are you spending your nights all focused on some snide remark someone else said when you've got the king of the universe saying that you are beautiful, that you are amazing, and that, you are, uh, that, you're, that your life is secure in him? What do you mean zap? You're, you're like, you're, you're, you're mind, you're, you've, you're, you're messing this thing up again. You're, you're walking like the old you. You need, to take, you need to take that thinking off and you need to embrace what he's doing in you today. You don't need to zap your problems. You need your problems zapped. You need to remind yourself of who God has made you to be and to put off the old, ask God to renew your mind, and put on the new.